1 John chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 7 and read through verse 19. And I'll remind you that this is God's word. Uh, it stands over your heart and over mine. So with that in mind, let me read this and then we'll look at it together. <clears throat> Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. This is God's word. If you would, please pray with me before we consider it together. All right, so let's pray. Uh, Father, we um, come into this room in all sorts of different conditions. Some of us are tired from the week. Many of us have had uh, tests and things. Uh, some of us are burnt out with uh, Christianity and with spiritual activity and wonder how, how they found themselves in a room like this tonight. Uh, some of us come in here just bored, hoping for one more thing that maybe can energize us and give us a little bit of life. Some of us come in here depressed and guilt-ridden. Some of us are excited and are anxious to hear uh, what your word has. Father, we come into this room in all sorts of different places and all sorts of different conditions. And, and I would just ask that you would be our teacher now. Ho Holy Spirit, would you come and would you unclog the ears that, that are clogged and allow us to hear uh, that which is true and right and beautiful. So that's our prayer, and we would pray in Jesus' name. All right, amen. So what does the Bible say about dating? Nothing. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. Uh, no, it, it's uh, uh, the reason why the Bible doesn't speak to dating specifically is because dating is a cultural construct. And so really what we have to do is we have to extract biblical, general biblical principles and then apply them to this sort of unique cultural thing that we call dating. And so admittedly, I'm just telling you on the front end, we're kind of entering into the realm of speculation here. So all that to say is, is I want you to feel free to wrestle with this stuff with me and with my wife and with our two interns, uh, Jen and Milo. We want you to wrestle uh, uh, with this material with us. Email us. We want to have coffee. We want to talk about, through this stuff about lunch. B because, you know, we really are sort of taking principles and then speculating. And so... You know, that's an invitation for you to come and, and chew over this material with us. But what I want to do tonight as we look at this is, is I want to look at three different things. And I went a little crazy with the alliteration. So 
You just have to tolerate my nerdiness. But I want to look first at the pattern of how we date. And then secondly, I want to look at the problems of the pattern. And then third, I want to look at where we get the power to repair the problems with the pattern. <laughs> okay? So to simplify it, let's look at the pattern and then the problems and then the power. Okay? That may make it easier. So let's look at the pattern of how we date. The pattern of dating. Here's what I want you to see. Is that every relationship that you have has one enormous assumption underneath it. And that is this. That every relationship begs for a definition. Every relationship that you have begs for a definition. So think about it like this. Every relationship that you have is basically, there's a question built into it that asks, what are we? You know, what is this? And so most of your, most of your relationships, that, that answer is fairly obvious and fairly intuitive. You think about your relationship with your parents, that answer is kind of established. You think about your parents with your, your relationship with your professors, that question's kind of answered. But when, when it comes to your friends, and especially when it comes to people that you're sort of romantically interested in, that question gets big time fuzzy. What are we? What, what is this? And so all I want to do at the beginning is to point out that there is an instinct in us that says we want to define this. We want to define every single relationship. And that's, I think, good and right because every relationship begs for a definition. So hold on to that idea for just a second. And now what I want to do is just mirror back to you the way that we date, the way that y'all date, okay? Here's how the pattern begins, is that you notice somebody that you think is cute or attractive, and you sort of you know, connect with them at some level. You begin to kind of gravitate towards them over time, and you start hanging out in groups together. And generally, there you know, kind of begins this low-level flirting that goes on. And inevitably, you become friends on Facebook, and then you start <laughs> Facebook chatting a lot. And because you're on Facebook and you get their phone number off of Facebook, you begin texting a lot. And so what begins to happen as y'all are kind of communicating a whole lot, this begins to generate this social buzz. And everybody starts to notice that y'all are hanging out and people start talking, right? Did you hear about so-and-so and this other so-and-so? They're hanging out a lot. They are spending a lot of time with each other. It sort of generates this social buzz. And then some form of the first date occurs. And in some cases, it's a very formal way of doing it, where the guy actually looks and says, I would like to take you out on a date. I would like to take you out this Friday night. Will you go on a date with me? That's the formal approach. This is so rare. This is like, an exo- this is like some exotic animal you've only heard about in like books but have never seen. This is, we might as well not even talk about that because this doesn't happen. The, the more common approach is the informal, the informal uh, way of starting up a, a kind of first date where you know, you're hanging out, everybody's kind of hanging out watching a movie together and people start you know, kind of leaving and inevitably it's just you and the other person there together and you hang out. Or you know, you're studying, quote, studying in the library till 2 o'clock in the morning together and you realize, hey, we're both hungry, let's go get cookout. And so you're hanging out deep into the middle of the night with each other. This, and, and obviously the informal approach is so much more attractive, especially for the guy, because he, as, he gets to date for free. He doesn't, he doesn't have to run the risk of actually asking the girl out because he's gutless and won't, and won't do it. <laughs> So the, the informal approach is the, is the attractive option. And what begins to happen as this goes on, on and on, is that there begins to develop some social isolation. You know, where the couple is sort of not a part of the group, they're kind of pulled off and they're together-ish, 
You know what I mean? It's sort of this awkward gray zone where we don't really know what, what this is, but, but we're hanging out a lot. And this, this can last anywhere from like two hours to two months. It, it, it varies in length. But what begins to happen is that uh, people start asking you the really annoying question of, what is up with y'all? Are y'all dating? What are y'all? And that's a really frustrating question because you don't know how to answer it. You don't know how to define the relationship. And so what we've done is that we've created these new terms on how to define this little awkward gray zone that we're in. No, we're not dating. We're talking. <laughs> we're, we're unofficially official, right? We're, we're talking. And see, what I want you to see is that even in this moment, there's this instinct in us that says we need to label this. We need to define this. We need to figure out what we are. We're not dating. We're, we're, we're talking. And so it's, it's, uh, this stage is really frustrating because you don't, know how to you don't know how to define it. And everybody's asking the question. And basically what you're doing is you are dating. You're just not calling it that. And it gets really annoying and frustrating as everybody asks that question. But then inevitably, you have the talk, right? The pivotal point in the relationship where you have the DTR. You define the relationship. You're, you're, you're staying up with each other in the middle of the night and, and the first person says, you know, I really like you. And then the other person says, you know, I really like you too. And then some threshold gets crossed and you're dating. You're dating. It's official. You are now dating. And this is what uh, one of my campus minister friends says, that the relationship is now institutionalized. It has been formalized. But then you make it actually extra official and make it FBO, yeah. Facebook official, right? <laughs> it, it, is, it is put into words on the internet. I am in a relationship with blank, right? And when, when, the, when the relationship gets to this point, there's a label on it. Uh, there's a new title for this thing. You have defined the relationship. It's institutionalized. It's formalized. And you yourselves have these new titles for each other. You refer to yourself as, you know, uh, the boyfriend or the girlfriend. And, and with these new titles and with this new definition, there is a whole host of new expectations and obligations and rules about how y'all are to start relating to each other, right? This is the pattern. So some of you are thinking, okay, well, what's so wrong with that, Matt? What are the problems with this pattern that you just laid out? Well, I want to look at two. I want to look at two problems with this pattern. This is sort of the, the second point that we're, that we're looking at. What are the two problems with this whole pattern? And, and I want to introduce the first problem uh, and set it up this way by telling you a story that I heard um, uh, from one of the RUF campus ministers. Uh, used to be the RUF campus minister at Ole Miss. His name's Les Newsom. He's our speaker at Fall Conference a few weeks ago. I heard the story from him. He was uh, at his campus, and one of his uh, female students came into his office and sat down with him, and she was so excited, and she said, well, I'm so excited. Last night we had the talk. It's official. We're dating now. And he's like, oh, that's great. You know, he's so excited for her. And he said, you know, I, he just wanted to ask her a question. He was kind of playing devil's advocate and he kind of wanted to understand what she was saying. And so, she, and so he asked her, okay, question for you. Um, what is different about your relationship uh, now that wasn't true of your relationship yesterday afternoon before you had the talk? You know, what's different today than that wasn't true yesterday? And she looks at him and she's like, well, we're dating. We're dating. <laughs> and he's like, uh, okay, yeah, I get that. But, but what does that mean? Like, I, I don't understand what that means. And she says, well, I, I guess that means that we've, 
we've agreed to only date each other. We're, we're exclusive. And he said, well, actually, that's not true because for the past two months, y'all have only been hanging out with each other. You've, you've, y'all have been going on dates and kind of spending all this time together exclusively, so that's not, that's not what's different. So what's different today that was different before y'all had this conversation? And she's starting to get confused, and she's kind of getting frustrated, and she thinks that he's kind of doing this indirect way of saying, I think y'all need to break up, and it's not what he was saying. And, and he goes, okay, well, let, let me just put it this way. He goes, if in a month... Uh, you meet a guy that you think is really cute and really attractive and really cool, and he really likes you, and in fact, you like him more than the guy that you're currently dating, what, what would you do? And she says, well, I guess we'd have to break up. That's the key. Maybe you didn't catch it because this is so just ingrained into the way that we think and operate as we think about dating that you may have missed the gravity of what she just articulated. Let me try to unpack, unpack this in a second. Um, uh, when we start dating someone and the relationship has become formalized, it feels like something has changed. It feels like something is very different. You have this new title. All the insecurities kind of you know, go away. You can exhale and you can breathe because you think, okay, we're, we're dating now. Now I know. But here's the reality. Nothing has changed. Nothing has really changed about your relationship because if you want to do the same thing with someone else tomorrow, you can. You have the freedom to break up and do the whole thing with somebody else the next day. Let me explain. Dating is by definition temporary. It is by definition temporary. I mean, you think that you are committing to each other because you are dating. You, you think that we, that we are in this thing called uh, a commitment. But the fact is there is no real commitment to it for the simple fact that you can break up whenever you want for whatever reason and then go out with somebody else. We, we think commitment is I'm committed to you as long as... I'm getting something out of it, as long as I still like you, as long as this thing is convenient to me. But that's not what the word commitment means. Commitment isn't, I'm committed to you as long as you fulfill these expectations. Commitment is, I'm committed to you, regardless, period. Look, when I was in seventh grade... I was um, spending the night over at my friend Alex's house, and he had a girlfriend that went to a different school, and so he was on the phone with her that night, and it so happens that she had a girlfriend staying the night at her house that night. And so inevitably, you know, my buddy Alex gives me the phone, his girlfriend gives her friend the phone, and I start talking with the friend on the phone for five hours. And um, by the end of that conversation, uh, I asked her to be my girlfriend, and she... Obliged, and she agreed. <laughs> and so, um, the next weekend, this is how we did it back in the day. The next weekend, our parents uh, drove us to the mall so that we could meet up with with each other, me and my buddy, and uh, my new girlfriend and uh, his girlfriend. And so, we're we're meeting in, in the mall, and when I saw my girlfriend, I thought she was unattractive. <laughs> I understand. This is this is horrific. This is shameful. So when when I saw her, I literally I ran in the other direction. And I know, I know. Throw tomatoes at me. And I hid in the clothes racks at, at you know, like the J C Penney. But here's what I want you to see. That's a shameful. It's horrific. I know. It's terrible. 
that's a stupid story, but I want you to, I want you to see that's not commitment. That's not commitment. And your relationships, if they're dating, are not commitment either. It's not commitment. Well, you might say, okay, Matt, you don't understand. You don't know my situation. You don't know my boyfriend or you don't know my girlfriend. We've been going out for, th- for five years now, and, and we are well committed to each other. We, we're thinking about the future. We're talking about the future. Uh, we're even talking about the names of our kids. Look, you are not committed to each other. By definition, by the simple fact that what y'all are doing is called dating means that y'all aren't committed. I mean, you have seen couples break up after, after going out for three, four, five years, right? I mean, this happens. It, it is not commitment simply by nature of the fact that what y'all are doing is called dating. Look, let me, let me try to explain it this way. I eat a ton of ice cream. I literally do. And, and I noticed, I think it was last summer, that Breyer's ice cream doesn't make ice cream. They, it, on the carton, it says, not ice cream, but frozen dairy dessert. I promise you, look at the grocery store, whatever, in this particular Breyer's brand, it says frozen dairy dessert. They don't make the real deal. But here's what I want you to see, is that Breyer's frozen dairy dessert uh, looks like ice cream. It tastes like ice cream. You buy it in the same section of the grocery store where you buy the rest of the ice cream, and it's not ice cream. It's frozen dairy dessert. (laughs) Here's what I want you to see. Dating is the same thing. It looks and feels a lot like marriage. It feels like it's a commitment, but it's not. It, 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 it feels like marriage in the sense that you know, there are two people who you know, are together. You know, it looks like marriage in the sense that you have this kind of physical and emotional uh, connection and if you can kind of you know, be affectionate with one another. And it looks like marriage in the sense that there is some level of commitment, but what I want you to see is that it's not. Dating, dating is essentially play-pretend marriage where you're dressing up and pretending to be married. And you feel like there's a commitment there because you have this label called dating underneath you, but it's not a real commitment. And, and so what, what, um, what ends up happening is the reason why we have the talk, the reason why we officialize it and formalize it is because we're so hungry, we're, we just so long to have some sort of uh, ritual that institutionalizes the relationship where two people stand up and tell each other, I like you, I like you, we're in this together. This is the same exact thing that happens at weddings where two people stand up and make vows to each other and promise and actually bind each other together with this thing called a covenant, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. The same thing happens in dating. The only difference is it doesn't bind you at all. There is no binding whatsoever, but it certainly feels like it. One, uh, one of my RUF campus minister friends defined dating this way. It is non-exclusive exclusivity. Non-exclusive exclusivity. The reason why that definition doesn't make sense is because dating doesn't make sense. And so, and so here's the first problem that I want you to see. If I can sort of just boil it down to a nutshell, here, here's the first problem. Dating is making an exclusive commitment that is by definition not exclusive and not a commitment. It's by definition not exclusive and not a commitment. Here's the second problem with this pattern. We then infuse all of the obligations and expectations and behaviors of marriage into the dating relationship. 
The second problem is then, once we have that label, we're dating, we then infuse all of the expectations and obligations and behaviors of marriage into the dating relationship. Let me explain what I mean. You say, well, we're dating. I have a right to your time. I have a right to your time because we're dating. So think of a couple, you know, one Friday morning, uh, one of the one of the people in the in the couple says, uh, "Hey, I think I'm going to go home this week, this weekend, and spend time with my family, uh, and just kind of you know get some laundry done and hang out. What are you going to do this weekend?" And the other person's like, "It's Friday morning. Why are you telling me this now? I thought we were going to I thought we were going to hang out this weekend. I mean, what am I supposed to do now?" <coughs> You see that? How is there? There's this expectation that I'm entitled to your time, and if I don't get what I'm entitled to, there's this twinge of frustration that comes up. We're dating. I have a right to your time. Or we're dating. I have a right to your attention. So think about it like this, where you have this couple that's you know, driving back home from hanging out with a group of friends later that night, and, and the guy looks at the girl and, and is like, I'm, I'm just really not um, feeling very good about what happened tonight. She's like, what's going on? He's like, look, um, you talked to like every other dude at that party and you like talked to me like twice the whole time. We were hanging out with everybody and you, you barely gave me the time of day. And then the girl's like, oh, you know, you're right. I'm so sorry. And then they patch it all up. But, but it never gets questioned. It never gets questioned whether or not he has the right to demand that she talk to him, that she give him her attention. It never gets questioned whether or not he has the right to that. We say, well, we're dating, I have a right to your time, I have a right to your attention, and I have a right to your body. We're dating, I have a right to your body. And so, you know, whenever that label happens, inevitably the door swings wide open for all sorts of physical and sexual affection to be um, expressed with one another. And, and different, you know, different couples draw the line in different places. Some people say, you know, we're just going to kiss. Some people say we're going to do everything that you want to do. And other people kind of draw the line in different places. But inevitably, that line starts to get kind of pushed further and further along as sexual contact begins to kind of intensify, right? And so, inevitably, you know, some, sometimes couples will come to me and say, you know, Matt, we're really struggling uh, the, 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 the line's been kind of pushed farther and we, we really need help on how we're going to be able to cut back. And I want to look and say, well, why do you think that you have a right to, to that person's body at any level in the first place? It never gets questioned. The, the assumptions are never questioned that because we're dating, I have a right to this. At some level, I have a right to this. And all I want you to think about is we should probably start rethinking the assumptions here. Being, being in a dating relationship does not entitle you to anything. So here's, here's what I mean. We've, we are infusing the obligations and the expectations and the behaviors of marriage into the dating relationship. You know, we say, I have a right to your time, I have a right to your attention, I have a right to your body. You are not allowed to date anybody else but me. That sounds a whole lot like what you would expect from marriage, not from dating. And what happens is when we take these sort of expectations and these entitlements and we put them into this little flimsy system called dating, it crushes it. It can't bear the weight of that. Uh, an example from my life. When I was dating Catherine, we were living in two different places. I was in Baton Rouge. She was in Atlanta. And uh, so we were doing the long distance thing. And uh, we had been dating for about eight months at this point. And we were essentially acting like we were married. 
and we were fighting all the time. And uh, we were on the phone every night. There was this expectation that we had, to, we had to talk every night on the phone. We didn't have Skype back then, or if we did, we weren't technologically savvy enough to know how to use it. But we were talking all the time on the phone, and we were fighting all the time. And, and uh, I had a conversation with my old RUF campus minister, and he looked at me and he said, why are y'all talking every night? Why do you feel the need to talk every single night? And he told us, y'all need to turn the pressure down and maybe talk every two or three days. And so Catherine and I kind of talked about it. We kind of turned the pressure off and then started talking every two to three days. And it saved our relationship. Because we were essentially acting like we were married. And the dating relationship is just its too flimsy to bear the weight of those sorts of expectations. And that's all I want you to see is that dating cannot bear that much weight. The weight that we put on it, it can't handle it. So if you, if you hear me say anything else tonight, here's what I want you to see. Is that dating, the whole pattern of dating, it is controlled and it is driven by insecurity and fear. It's driven by insecurity and fear. Because you're talking with this person, right? And, there, and there's this insecurity that begins welling up in you and nagging you of what is this, what is this, what is this, what are we? And you put a label on it and oh, all the insecurities go away. But then it all starts flooding back slowly because then you, just gotta think, you start thinking, I, well, I've got to keep this person. I've got to guarantee that I keep this person. And so what that means for you is that uh, you start getting really clingy with each other and you start getting really jealous if they're hanging out with other people too long. You get really controlling. And all of that is driven by insecurity of trying to make sure that the other person stays with you. And then insecurity drives the fact that you can't really confront each other because you're so worried that the next fight might be the, might be the one that ends the whole relationship. So you have to tiptoe around each other. And inevitably, the, one of the reasons why we're so emotionally and physically and sexually involved with each other is driven by this insecurity of, I've got to guarantee that they stick around. I've got to, I've got to give them enough of me to ensure that I keep them. All of this is driven by insecurity and fear. So what do we do with it? Where do we get the power to repair the problems with this pattern, presumably? <laughs> well, I want to look at this last thing. Where do we get the power? Because I know, I know some of you are sitting here thinking right now, okay, well, Matt, what does this mean? Are you saying that we can't date? Are you saying that we shouldn't be defining our relationships? Are you, I mean, what am I supposed to do with the relationship I'm currently in? Look, next week we're going to get way more practical and talk way more about sort of the ins and outs of dating. But for now, for tonight, I just, all I want to do is address the heart. I want to address the heart, that heart that is so restless and driven by insecurity and fear and, and, and to see, okay, what can we do about that? Here's where you get the power to address the heart. It is when you begin to grasp the gospel of Jesus in a more deeper way. That is where you get the power. I want to show you from this passage um, something that's pretty incredible. Uh, look, at, look at verse 17 and 18. John writes, In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. Here's what John is saying. He is saying, in the gospel, you have resources to make you confident on judgment day. If you look down the end of time, the quarters of time, and you know that God is going to judge you perfectly, and he is a holy and righteous judge, you can have confidence as you move into that. 
Now you think about that, okay, how in the world does that work? Because I know if this is God's standard and I am a mess and I'm radically rebellious and the things that I think and the things that I do don't measure up all the time, how, how in the world can I move into that with confidence, much less you know, not a panic attack and anxiety and fear? How in the world do we get confidence? Because we know that God isn't great on a curve. He doesn't look at you and say, well, you tried hard, I'll let you in anyway. We know that he is a holy and righteous judge. So how in the world do we get confidence? Well, look at verse 18. It says, perfect love drives out fear. When you know God's love for you, this is what begins to drive out the fear and the worry and actually can give you confidence. Okay, how can you know God's love then? How can you know God's love? Okay, well, look at verse 10. It says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is saying that when Jesus came to earth and died on the cross, this was God's objective demonstration of his love for you. Here's what that means. That means that if you are in Jesus, if you have put your trust in Jesus, God has extinguished all of his wrath all of his judgment, all of anything that he could punish you for on him. It's completely emptied. It's completely extinguished. So that now, if you are in him, he has nothing but love for you. He cannot judge you. He cannot hold your sins against you because he has held them against Jesus. And there's no commingling of, I love you and I delight in you, but I'm also disappointed in you and frustrated with you. All of that is gone. He has nothing but love for you if you are in him. And when you begin to get that into your head and into your heart, that is what begins to push out the fear and, and, and swell you up with confidence. Think about it like this. Uh, there was a time in my life when I um, cared about the clothes that I wore and cared about how much in shape I was and cared about my complexion and all this stuff. And it was because I wanted girls to like me. And then this woman named Catherine Drinkard came into my life and married me and looks at me and says, I love you. And now... I don't really care what other girls think about me. Her love for me has given me this jolt of confidence and security. So if homegirl over there doesn't really like me, it doesn't, who cares? Who cares if this person doesn't like me? Because she loves me. Think about if we could get our hearts around the fact that God loves us, that God loves us. What would that do? What, What kind of confidence and security would that give us if we could wrap our head around that? The assurance of God's love for you is where you get the power to live the Christian life. The assurance of God's love for you is where you get the power to live the Christian life. So how, what in the world does this have to do with dating? Let me try to connect into that real quick and then we'll be done. I'll wrap up with this. Y'all remember the movie um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? Great movie, Jim Carrey, Kate Winslet. Basically, the story is that that Jim Carrey is this dude named Joel. And he is dating this girl named Clementine, the Kate Winslet character, who he calls uh, Tangerine. And um, they're dating, and they have this really horrific, messy, turbulent relationship and she's because she's so hurt because she's so broken by the relationship she goes to uh, this this place and gets this procedure done where she has all of her memories erased of her relationship with Joel with the Jim Carrey character 
And he's so heartbroken over this that she would go and basically remove him from her life that he goes and does the same thing. He gets his mind completely erased of all the memories of her. So here are these two people who are in this relationship. They have their memories erased, and now they go back out into the world. And they eventually, ironically, kind of meet each other again. And there's this sort of like nostalgic thing of them trying to figure out how they know each other. And uh, so they start striking up a relationship again. And it's in the context of that new relationship that they start having these dialogues. There's some incredible dialogues. I just want to read you a couple of them. She says this. Joel, yeah, Tangerine, am I ugly? Uh Uh-uh. When I was a kid, I thought I was. I can't believe I'm already crying. Sometimes I think people don't understand how lonely it is to be a kid, like, like you don't matter. And Joel says, you're pretty. Jolie, don't ever leave me. You're pretty, you're pretty, you're pretty. And he goes on and he says, I, I, don't think, I, I don't see anything that I don't like about you. And she says, but you will. You know, you'll think of things and I'll get bored with you and I'll feel trapped because that's what happens with me. He goes, okay. And what, what, what I want you to see with those little snippets of dialogue is that she is basically telling us, she's mirroring back to us our own longings and our own fears. Because, I mean, she's basically asking this question, if you really knew me, would you love me? If you, if you really knew what you were getting yourself into with me, if you could see me to the bottom, would you still love me? You know about that question. You know about that fear and that insecurity. If you really knew me, would you still love me? And I know, just because I know some of your stories, that people have seen you for who you are and they've rejected you. It's either your parents, it's either a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or your friends, or somebody at school who has seen you for who you are and wanted nothing to do with you. Christianity is offering you something very different. Where God looks at you and says, look, I know how deep the mess runs in you. And I am signing up for you. I know how messy you are and I've elected you. I have elected to love you. Look, here's what I want you to see. This is, this is why in verse 16 it says that now we know and rely on the love of God. When you know the love of God like this, not just as a cognitive category, but when you know it and when you rely on it and you settle yourself upon it and you live there, this is what gives you this confidence and this security and this equilibrium to live life completely differently. I mean, can you imagine how different our dating relationships would look? How different our lives would look if we lived in light of this? That we would know and and rely on the love that God has for messy people like us who he does not reject but pursues. I I think our lives would look radically different. But what I want you to see is that this is what is being offered to you in the gospel. This is what is offered to you in the gospel. To know and to rely upon the love that God has for you in Jesus. Consider that your invitation tonight. Let's pray. Father, would you give us faith to fix our eyes on Jesus who, who knows our sin enough that he had to die for us and, and yet loved us enough to where he was glad to die for us. Would you enable us to know and rely upon the love that you have for us in Jesus and would that change everything about us from the way that we think about ourselves to the way that we think about the people that we date to the way that we date. Would that transform us? That's our prayer tonight and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.